0: Good morning, good morning. Man, it's so good to be with you guys this morning. If you're new to Upstate Church, uh, then I, I'm, I'm going to give you like a fire hydrant uh, introduction to some things because uh, of, of just something I'm going to share you wouldn't probably even understand. Even hearing, oh, this lead pastor, is this guy that normally the guy who's out here? No is the answer to that. Dustin, who was just mentioned, is over at the Malden campus, is the campus pastor here. He teaches uh, most of the time. He's about 35 times a year or more. Uh, he is the primary teaching pastor here at Upstate Church Five Forks. He's over at Malden where Ashley's the campus pastor. A lot of things have happened recently in our church. That is one church in five places. We're legitimately one church, like in every way possible. One by, uh, one bylaws, one budget, one set of deacons, you name it, all right? We're really one church. We have five gatherings, five gathering places, 11 different services every Sunday morning. So I say that because if you're new here, it'd be real easy just to kind of think, well, whatever happens here in the two hours is all that happens in upstate church. But man, it's just the, the thing that's so exciting about it, and the thing I'm excited that God's given me an opportunity just to be a part of it, is that it's just bigger than any one person, bigger than any one campus. Last week, just to give you an idea, uh, we heard just a minute ago, had 10 baptized. Would you believe 2,250 people, this is mid-COVID, right? 2,250 people were in person at one of the five campuses. That's remarkable. And so, praise God for that. Yeah. In addition to that, over 500 were watching online. 500 homes, not 500 people. So, it's just crazy without, the, I guess, the reach and the connection that God is, is using you to make throughout the upstate. And I really do believe it's just really begun. And Dustin is a phenomenon. I know you hear him all the time so you know this, but we're blessed to have Dustin Dozier and Sloan here at the Five Forks campus. Yeah, and uh, yeah, go ahead and praise the Lord for them, man. You guys are, are blessed, and, uh, and I'm not near as funny as Dustin, all right? I am a little taller. Tell him I said that, all right? But, uh, but I, I want us to dive into the Word. I'm going to try to build on what you've heard Dustin say over the last few weeks, but just to let you know again, if you're new... We have seven teaching pastors. All seven of those teaching pastors, the six you don't have as a campus pastor, the other six will come two times a year to preach here. All right. So 12 of the weeks will be people like me coming on that teaching team and adding to, and Dustin will be teaching somewhere else. So when he's not here, he's not in Hawaii, right? He's somewhere else in our body uh, teaching. And what that does, it decentralizes things, and it's very intentional. Just to be honest, Sam, who led worship up here with Carrie, uh, Sam is primary uh, worship leader at Malden, and I'm primary teacher downtown. So it's cool. I think it's so beautiful that we're teams of worship leaders and pastors who are working together, and and so we don't we don't do personality worship, you know. One or two times a year, there may be a video message from me on the screen. That's rare. That's rare, because we believe that you should have a live teacher in front of you. And we believe that God wants to use us all as a team of people to lead his body. And so anyway, that's a little bit about who we are. We, Destin started in this series four weeks ago or so, talking about the providence of God. If you remember the story of David, we're talking about the crown. This is the story of David. We'd say King David, but really in the beginning, it wasn't the king, right? He was just a shepherd boy. He was the ninth of nine sons of Jesse. And in that first message that we talked about with providence, it was all about like David was least likely to succeed, right? Least likely to be the king. Samuel went looked looking to anoint someone and knew it was Jesse's house. He, he brought out the other eight, and these aren't the guys, but finally he said, Do you have any more? And he said, Well, I got one guy. He's out in the field right now. You know, he's just a scrawny little fella. Well, David was the one anointed king. Kind of taught us that providentially, God doesn't need us to be perfect, He doesn't need us to, to depend on our own skill set. He doesn't need us to prove our worth, but ultimately God's going to use the man or the woman that depends on him. And it even started in that very first message teaching us that the reason David was a man after God's own heart, the reason why David ultimately was used by God in this way is because he understood that the crown was never his to begin with. Even though he was the king, that the throne was never his to begin with. That ultimately he was only king because God providentially ordained him to be king, anointed him as king even then. The second week you talked about David and Goliath, the story of this nine and a half foot tall dude who came against the people of Israel and everybody cowered down, but this little shepherd boy who had been anointed king thought enough of God and actually had faith enough into God's ability and power that uh, he didn't just believe he was providentially called to be the king, but he was going to stand in the power of God and fight that giant, not in his own ability again, remember? Remember? Uh, but he was going to fight that giant in the power and the name and for the glory of God. And what happened? The giant fell. Then later on we see, even uh, even later, that uh, David's in a cave. You remember the story. Saul comes into the cave. David's running from Saul for his life. And, and Saul comes in there. And David could have taken his life, but he decides not to. And uh, he trusts the plan of God. cuts the... The, the corner of his robe off, and, and basically goes to Saul and says, look, I, I could have killed you, but I didn't. That's just trusting in God's plan. See, a lot of times we want to take it into our own hands and do what we think's best and and kind of fast forward God's plan in our lives, um, but, but not David. David, it seems like the first three weeks, David's like picture perfect, man. David's the example of what we wish we could be. But last week, it wasn't that way. Last week, if you missed it, go back and listen to da- uh, Dustin preach it. Uh, it was on David and Bathsheba. And uh, the story was, was like the worst, right? This was the story of David. Uh, it actually begins in that text saying it was a season when kings go out to battle and David stayed home in Jerusalem. So it, it actually starts by saying David was where he shouldn't be. David, David was, was out of position and so when we're where we shouldn't be, we see things we shouldn't see. And it leads to us doing things we should never do. And that's what David did. David saw Bathsheba. The rest is history. He, he really, in a way, abused his power. Uh, you could even say assaulted her. We don't know the details because it doesn't give us up But the fact. Of the matter is, uh, he ends up committing adultery, uh, causing her to commit adultery, and then kills her husband, uh, marries her. Drama. Man, Jerry Springer, big time. You know what I'm saying? And then, then we, we see that story comes to an end, and it's all about restoration at the end. God forgives David, although there are consequences to pay. But it leads us to this story today that, i just tell you, it's, it's going to be a very challenging word, and it's a lot of scripture. We're going to cover a lot of space in a short amount of time. So if you can open up your Bible, turn in, turn on your Bible to 2 Samuel 15. We're actually going to be in four chapters, all right? 15 through 18, but we're going to do it very quickly, all right? We're going to read portions of it. I'm going to, I'm going to summarize a lot of the narrative, a lot of the story. So I kind of need, really need you to lean in and, and stay with me. The whole point of David's story is, again, to remind us that at the end of the day, we may want to say, hey, that's an extreme situation. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. I, I'm not a giant killer, all right? And so I don't really see myself in David's story, I want you to really become honest with yourself enough. And look, it's all of us. I need to become honest with myself enough to where I can see myself in this story. Maybe, maybe we haven't committed adultery. Maybe we haven't committed murder like David did with Uriah. And maybe we haven't made the mistakes we're going to see him make in making this story. But we can understand we're all sinners. We all fail God, man. Nobody in this room's perfect. There's nobody in this room that deserves to be on a higher pedestal than anybody else. We're, we're all sinners, We don't have the right to look down our nose at other people. We're not going to be self-righteous hypocrites who condemn everybody. The fact of the matter is, we didn't deserve the grace God gave to us. Now, it doesn't mean that sin is not sin. And it doesn't mean we're not going to, to speak truth. But it does mean that we understand that it doesn't make us any better because we're saved. At the end of the day, Jesus is the one who makes us better. It's not because we've done what good. It's not because we're good workers or, or benevolent and generous people. It is because God's grace was given to us, and we embraced it. So our story really isn't that much different than David's. His victories came when he acknowledged that God was on the throne and that the crown belonged to him. And his failures came when he forgot who the king really was, Right? He, his failures came when he thought the world revolved around him. And so as we look at 2 Samuel 15, 1, this is the tough part. We're actually starting at the end, all right? I'm going to go and warn you. We're going to back up and explain how we got to this point. But Absalom is David's son. And so it says in verse 1 of chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, after this, we'll explain this in a minute, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before King David for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. That may seem a little odd, but here's the if I can set it up for you. Absalom was causing his dad trouble. Absalom was not on his dad's side. In in this this end story in chapter 15, Absalom is actually contrary to the throne. He's trying to be contentious and trying to undermine his authority, the authority of his dad. Says then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were the judge of the land. Oh, that I was the king. I wish I were the king. If I was the king, then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice because I'm a man of justice. There's this unspoken impl- implication that my dad is not a man of justice. My dad is not going to do what is just, but I would if I was the king. Verse 5, And whenever a man came near and paid homage to him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Literally Kissing up to the people of Israel, right? Verse 6, Then Absalom did to all of Israel, uh, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom, listen to these words, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So over time, the, the son of King David began to usurp his authority and actually undermine him. And, and as a result, won over much of Israel, including many of the soldiers, eventually really, the entire army. So 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6 and 7 actually fast-forwards even more a few chapters ahead. says, So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. You may say, what battle? It's the battle, this has actually come to the point where Absalom is now doing war with his dad, David... Absalom now has the armies of Israel doing battle against his dad, who is the king. So this is crazy, but this is what's happened. And the men of Israel were defeated. Not David. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, about 20,000 men. So David's son starts by stirring up trouble... Here in the story, chapter 15. But eventually tries to kill David, tries to take his throne. And it begs the question, what was Absalom's deal, man? What was Absalom so mad about? Why would a son of the king go to these lengths to to kill his dad and to take his throne? And so we're going to talk, first of all, about Absalom's ambition. This is kind of the first idea. If you do have the app, that'll be right there. Your first idea or first point principle is, is related to Absalom's ambition. We have to understand ambition, usually when we think about it, is all about pride and arrogance. And I think that had to be part of Absalom's problem. But his ambition was fueled by anger. His ambition was, in his mind, a righteous cause. And and sometimes my wife and I, Amy's here, uh, my wife and I talk about how uh, how some, some people do bad things and think they're doing them for God. I mean, in that, I don't know if you, man, just look around, and, and you can see people who are doing in the name of God. I mean, just think about 9-11. We recently talked about the 20th year of that. There are people, just because someone says they believe in God and they're doing something on behalf of God doesn't mean they're doing a good thing. So in his defense, in a way, Absalom had convinced himself, I'm sure, that that he was right to be angry. There was a reason to be anger, angered, and, and we'll talk about why he was mad. But but he was he was not just prideful and arrogant. He was aggressive. He was bitter, and he wanted to uh, really, in, in a way, gain vengeance for someone that he loved who had been wronged. So let's back up and learn a little more about Absalom's story. Absalom was David's third son, and he was considered to be the most handsome man in Israel. Now, that's not just a statement, all right? Chapter 14, verse 25 actually describes him as a flawless man from head to foot. Now, how many of you wives can say that about your husband, all right? Amy cannot, all right? A flawless man from head to foot. Um, but chapter 14, verse 26 actually kind of tells us a little bit more about his head because it gives us a picture of this Fabio kind of guy. Now, I said Fabio to my young daughter, and she's like, Fabio, who? Who's that? I have no idea. So if you're under like 30, you probably don't know, all right? But Fabio's this like long-haired guy. Anyway, so so Fabio, this, this uh, Absalom guy had long hair. It actually goes into detail in the passage there in chapter 14, saying that his hair was so long that periodically when they would cut it, it would the extra that they would cut off was five pounds. That's crazy, man. I mean, I literally have an ounce or two, right? And and Amy's saying you need a haircut, right? So that that shows that this guy had I'm talking a, an abundance of hair, but he was a a handsome, good-looking guy, undoubtedly in the eyes of Israel. Absalom had a sister named Tamar. Now this is some of the background that I think we need to understand. Uh, Solomon, just to give you a little side note here, Solomon actually, who becomes king later, kills a brother, all right, who was actually following in the footsteps of Absalom in some ways. And so later, post this whole story, we got a brother killing a brother, a son of David killing a son of David. But, but this is all more Jerry Springer. And I'm being very serious. When you say this is the most dramatic story you've ever heard, you're talking about a messed up family. David had a messed up family, all right? Because Tamar, the daughter of David, was actually a virgin, it says very clearly in the text. But Amnon, a, a son of David, who was her half-brother, fell in love with her. And again, there's a lot of mess about you know, the incestuous stuff there. But he actually sexually assaulted her. She did not comply. But uh, after he assaulted her, then he rejected her in disgrace... And, uh, and so it's a multiple-layered, terrible story of Amnon, but uh, this Old Testament Springer story, the hard part about it is David did nothing. David did nothing, and we'll get specific about what nothing he did later, but, uh, but one might expect the king to actually act here. This is a, a need in Absalom's defense For justice, and David does not respond. This is a man after God's own heart. This is a man who slew giants. This is a man who obviously loved the Lord and and was following him with all of his heart, though not a perfect person. But David seemed more concerned about his throne than his home. And this is a big problem. David was much more concerned about keeping it on the down low. You know, let's, let's sweep it under the rug. Let's not make this the headline. I don't really want everybody to know about our business. And I think that's kind of, if we're not careful and if we're honest, we will admit, that oftentimes that's kind of how we are. We, we would rather, it's not that we're saying it's okay, but we would rather avoid the confrontation. We'd rather not deal with it. We would rather avoid the drama altogether. That, that is a, a tendency of ours in our flesh, is to run from the confrontation. Naturally, Absalom, however, was furious. He was furious because he loved his sister Tamar, and his other brother, Amnon, had, had violated her, and he, he wanted justice. So Absalom, in his fury, protected and sheltered Tamar for two years. So Absalom's not, like, jumping to conclusions. He's not running in to, to kill David. He actually sits back and protects Tamar, for two years in her disgrace, he sits back and he watches David in his complacency and compromise. Now, again, understand this is God's anointed. This is a man who scripture says was a man after God's own heart. It ought to not uh, give us an excuse, but to explain a little bit of why we struggle as well. There are times where Paul said it like this. The Apostle Paul said, there, "There are things we know to do and we don't do them. There are things we we don't do that we know we should do, and, and it's just so confusing." Paul said, "Why I'm just a wretched man. Why is it that I can't just be obedient to God?" We struggle in the same way. It may not be these extreme cases of these top three sins in our minds, but all sin is a disgrace to God. God never loves sin. And so when there's something in our heart and our life that we have compromised on, that we have uh, basically given ourselves over, we've gotten used to, we've become that frog in a kettle, then ultimately God is not happy with us either. And so Absalom is sitting back, giving David time to, to deal with it, but David did nothing to Amnon, which turned rage into a vengeful plight. So it's important to note that while Absalom was angry, he was angry for a good reason, And his frustration, in some ways, was justified. Now, this doesn't mean his frustration and what led to violence was justified, but his frustration was justified. But here's what we need to hear. Our righteous outrage never justifies unrighteous vengeance. Our righteous outrage never justifies unrighteous vengeance. In the culture that we live in right now, I I feel silly to even use this as an example because I know we're so aware of it. But look, we need to be reminded that we live in a culture that's bent against God. It's turned the other way; it is absolutely running the other way. And if we're not careful, we can easily become uh, numb to it. We can become complacent. We can can easily become to where we're just we're just uh, uh, neutral on things that God is not neutral on. And we need to make sure that is not the case. We're not going to drift to that extreme. But we also shouldn't drift to the extreme of Absalom, where he took vengeance on his own like he he decided to take matters into his own hands he did what david did not do in the cave with saul you see david actually did not touch god's anointed in this case absalom said i i know better than david maybe i know better than god if god is going to allow david to be on the throne then i'm going to i'm going to remove him and so we have to remember continually no matter who we're we're facing no matter what the culture is saying we've got to remember that when we are wronged it doesn't mean we wrong back Let's get political, all right, in a very general way. No matter what side you're on on any issue, when the people on the other side throw rocks at you, that doesn't give you an excuse to do the same thing. It doesn't give me an excuse. If someone is, is arrogant and prideful and hateful at me, it doesn't give me an excuse to be hateful to them. I should be Jesus to them. It doesn't mean I cave. It doesn't mean I don't stand up for the truth. But it does mean that I'm not going to be... Uh, the devil to them, the way that they're being the devil to me. And so our righteous outrage never justifies unrighteous vengeance. In, in his rage, Absalom came up with a plan. And he invited all his brothers over to his house for a celebration. Now that sounds really great, right? Get all the gang together, right? But what a- Absalom did is when Amnon was there partying, he got his soldiers to take him outside and kill him. And so Absalom kills his brother... And as a result, runs for his life for three years. He spends the time on actually the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's very specific. He ran from his dad. He was afraid, obviously, that King David was going to kill him because Absalom had killed his brother. But Absalom gradually uh, continued to undermine uh, his father, began to build a defense uh, against his his dad, uh, not his brother's dad. And and we see that uh, in chapter 15, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 13, after three years of Absalom being away, David asks him to come home. David actually kind of sends an invitation. Would you come back? Absalom comes in at the end of chapter 14, bows before the throne. I mean, they kiss, they make up. Everything seems okay. There's no mention at all about David from David's perspective if he's going to punish Absalom for killing Amnon. He's not going to do anything about Tamar. He's basically just, just again, complacent. He's just neutral. And so as a result, Absalom, in chapter 15, eventually Absalom goes to Hebron and he starts building an army to fight. And so David seems to be oblivious to all of this, but Absalom builds up the opposition, and he starts building the case. And that's when we read a moment ago, at the very beginning, he's standing at the gate, and he's stirring up trouble. He's trying to get people to come to him, and it literally says in the passage that the hearts of the men of Israel turn to Absalom. So David told his men, in the midst of this time, it looks like they're going to battle. He flees from Jerusalem. He says, let's run. We'll read it in just a moment. And as he runs, he's telling his men, if we fight uh, against Israel, uh, don't kill my son. Don't kill Absalom. It's so amazing that in the midst of this, he still cared about his son. He was still compassionate towards him. The armies met in Ephraim in chapter 18, and it says, again, 20,000 men died in battle. God's hand was with David, and he providentially guided him. So we see Absalom's ambition that was fueled by anger and aggression. But then second thing I want you to look at is David's apathy. We've already mentioned it at length, but I want you to notice that, that David was just completely apathetic. David became so familiar with God's providence so familiar with God's power that this familiarity with what God was doing, I'm afraid, kind of put him to sleep. And this is so easy for us, man. It's so easy for us to to just get so used to what God's doing. You know, I mean, boy, I, I tell you, just to think about the fact that yes, ten people were baptized into the faith family that you're a part of last Sunday. Isn't it really interesting that even things like that that ought to honestly stir our heart? We ought to. We ought to be. We ought, we should still be celebrating the fact that ten people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Ten people will spend eternity in heaven now instead of eternity separated from a loving God in a place called hell. See, those kind of things, we can become so used to God working. We can become so used to being a part of what God's doing that's exciting that it's almost like we're just complacent. You know, we're just kind of like, oh, it's apathetic. We're just, oh, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Awesome. New members, you know. Yeah, people got baptized. That's, That's so sad. This is where David's at, though. David's at a place to where... God has been faithful, and He knew it. And I think He just was in cruise control. He was just living His life. He was just like, whatever, man. And yeah, I, I'm I'm really upset about uh, Tamar. In fact, here's what the Scripture says in chapter thirteen, verse twenty-one. Oddly enough, it says David was very angry. David was very angry when Amnon killed. I mean, I'm sorry, assaulted Tamar. David was very angry, but he didn't allow his righteous anger to lead to justice for Tamar. He he just sat back in his complacency, and so basically, David looked the other way. He swept it under the rug, and he avoided confrontation, and therefore pushed away justice for Tamar. And if we're not careful, we do the same exact thing in our own lives. And our complacency, and our just uh, getting so familiar and used to God moving, we we ultimately take it for granted. Later on, Absalom is plotting to kill David. And it says in chapter 15, verse 13, he runs for his life. Look, it says in verse 13, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. Let us get out of here, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. So so here's the thing. How does that apply to us? Again, you may be saying, Man, I've never had a son trying to kill me. You know, I, I, all this stuff about David's life is so different. It's, it's, I, I can't relate to any of it. Look, I, I want us to really try to, to bring it back to our terms. The fact of the matter is, we need to be able to see ourselves in David. We need to be able to see ourselves in Absalom. We even need to be able to see ourselves in Amnon. All three of these men, they were, they were obviously imperfect people. It may be we need to see ourselves in Tamar. We have been wronged, we've been violated. But there are times where we have been the one who has wronged. We have been the one who is guilty of being the, the one who is uh, the aggressor. We've been the one who has taken matters into our own hands like Absalom. We've been the complacent, apathetic king like David. There, there's, there's none of us who are exempt from this reality that, that at the end of the day, we are guilty. We are guilty. It may be different circumstances. It may be different sins. But we all stand guilty. There's no, no one, no pastor, no teacher, no deacon, whoever gets to some point to where they can look down again at their noses at everyone else and say, oh, well, this is not me. No, and here's the problem. When, we, when we're confronted by the Holy Spirit, we usually do exactly what David did. Let us flee. Let's just run from it. I, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with Amnon. I don't want to deal with Absalom I don't want to deal with this sin. I don't want to deal with this confrontation. I don't want to deal with this person that's done me wrong. I don't want to deal with this accusation that I have done someone wrong. I just, let's run from it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. And this is why a lot of people, honestly, even run from church in, in general, because when they actually sit under the teaching of God's word, the Holy Spirit does work. I mean, the Holy Spirit speaks. And he teaches us, and he actually convicts us, and he, he digs inside of our heart and, and shows us where we need to come back to him. And so we run from that. And so we need to today be willing not to run away, but to stand and actually pray. Don't run away, but stand and pray. And let's, let's see what David did that actually brought solution. In 2 Samuel 15, 30... Eventually, David is broken before the Lord. It says in verse 30, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. Man, he's just bawling, barefoot and with his head covered. He is officially mourning as the people of Israel did. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as well as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Now, Ahithophel was actually an advisor of David's, and now he's he's become a traitor, and he's become one with Absalom. And David said, Oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This may seem like an insignificant thing, but two things happened here. David is broken, and David is dependent. And David's on his face before God for the first time. Up until this point, he's complacent. He doesn't He's just like apathetic. He just seems indifferent. Now he's broken before God. He is weeping. He recognizes he's in a mess. He, he admits his mess. He has no idea. How in the world did it come to this? Why didn't I do something different? And so at this point, finally, instead of trying to figure it out and, and instead of obviously trying to run away, he is, he's reaching out to God and he's saying, God, I recognize I'm in a position that if you don't move, I'm not going anywhere, right? If you, God, if you don't rescue me, I am going to die. And so in the midst of this brokenness, we see that David found rescue. 2 Samuel eighteen nine. David's men had defeated the armies. So if we fast forward again back to the, the end of the story, where we started, Absalom was riding a mule to get specific about how it ended. I thought this was so funny, talking about his hair. He was fleeing from the battle because uh, the, the Israelites had lost to the, the men of David. But as he's riding the mule, can't make this stuff up, Absalom's hair gets caught in a tree. Now, that's a lot of hair. You know what I'm saying? And that must be some frizzy hair. I'm not really sure what was going on. But the hair got caught in a tree. And it literally says he was hanging by his hair from a tree. And, uh, and so Joab, who is the leader of David's men, finds him or hears about it, runs to him, and kills him. And when David hears about Absalom's death, he's grieving. And at the close of chapter 18... And this is a a son who's trying to kill him, but he's grieving. He's grieving. Now, here's the truth. This wasn't Goliath. This was an enemy, but it wasn't Goliath. It was a very different kind of enemy. God delivered the anointed, David, nonetheless. Even though he was guilty. Even though in some cases, he had not done what God wanted him to do. He was complacent. He was looking the other way. He was not leading in a just way, but he was still God's anointed. God was... God was leading him, and Absalom stepped outside of that for multiple reasons. So we've got to remember, look, the crown was never really David's. And he understands, I think, through this story, and it is running in and out of an acknowledgement of this, but David recognized again that it was really God's crown to begin with. And he he falls broken on the Mount of Olives and, and prays for not just rescue, but I believe he prays for restoration. So what's that mean to us? Man, just as we've already mentioned, David's not the only one. Absalom's not the only one. Amnon's not the only one that's guilty of rebellion. We're all guilty of rebellion. It's almost like last week's story. You remember when Nathan came to David, told him the story about the the man who had the lamb stolen? And what did he say to David? He said, you are the man. You're the man. Now, I know this is, this is tough, but the truth of the matter is, no matter what the story is in Scripture, we are the man. I mean, there are days where we are the shepherd boy who somehow, through the power of God, defeats a giant. I'm, I'm grateful to God for those days. Those are good days, right? But there are some days where I'm Absalom. There are some days where we're guilty like Amnon. And we all are in desperate need of restoration, not just rescue from the fight, from the battle, from the danger, but but restoration back to a relationship with Jesus. Isaiah fifty three six says, "All we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all." Laid on who? He's laid on Jesus Christ the iniqui- iniquity of us all. What's that mean? Jesus took our sin. Jesus took our sin. And so if we're walking around in bondage, if we're walking around carrying the burden of the mistakes that we've made, then, man, we are not taking advantage of the restoration that God provides because restoration is always available. Restoration is always available. Here's the cat. It's not automatic. Restoration, salvation, it's not automatic. Man, we've got to repent. We've got to repent of our rebellion Turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. So I hope and pray today, whatever your circumstance, whatever your story, man, let's depend on Jesus. Let's fall like David did on that mount that day. Let's fall in brokenness before the Lord. Let's, man, let's even in our hearts weep before God over our sin. And let's cry out to Him. He's the only one who can change our fate. Lord, we love you. I thank you for your word. So good. God, you're so good. Lord, I pray as we as we sing the closing song, God, that you would just do for us and in us what we cannot do for ourselves. God, that you would speak, that you would speak convicting words to our heart. God, show us where we are, the man. God, would you show us? when we are guilty just like David, when we are guilty just like Absalom, God, when we're guilty even like Amnon, Lord, would you show us that we're sinners and we desperately need you, God. Lord, we cry out to you today. Restore us, we pray in Jesus' name. Would you stand?